everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Well, today is one of those crazy, stormy days in the Mojave, and you may hear the wind blowing in the background, which seems kind of appropriate because I want to talk to you about the Greek goddess Hera. Hera, the great goddess, the queen, the wife of Zeus, who was the leader and ruler of the Olympians. There are many, many myths about her. She's a huge topic. But what I want to tell you about today is her jealousy. Some of the most familiar stories about Hera involve the retribution that she exacts when she is confronted with her husband Zeus's many infidelities. And I've been asked to tell you some of these stories and talk about this aspect of the goddess in this podcast by a member of the Bandcamp community. So, Phil, thank you so much for your suggestion and to express my deep appreciation for your ongoing financial support of this program, this podcast is for you. Now, jealousy was a very common feeling among the Greek gods and goddesses. If you know Greek mythology at all, you know that they were always throwing a fit about something. Um, They were not calm, peaceful, benevolent figures by any stretch. And Hera was not the only one who was periodically jealous. So first I want to give you a little bit of background about her, beginning with the fact that Hera was the goddess of marriage. (laughs) So her jealousy is taking place in the context of marriage, that particular form of coupledom. Hera was the sister of Zeus. They were both children of Kronos. And Zeus had had a couple of other serious partners before he married Hera, but we're told that she grew up to be an unusually beautiful woman. And Zeus loved her for a very long time before they got married. According to some stories, they had carried on secret affairs when he was coupled up with some of the other titanesses. Some say that he desired her for 300 years and that they made love together for 300 years when they first got married. Their marriage was a cause of great celebration, and Gaia, the earth, gave Hera the golden apples that Hera later planted in her famous garden as a wedding present. Hera had four children, three of whom she had with Zeus, but the Greeks never called Hera mother. She was not maternal like Demeter. Hera was the queen, the supremely powerful goddess, and she was the wife, the partner, the mate. Her focus was her husband, not her children. And there's a story about Hera and Zeus that I think speaks to the kind of intimacy that can exist between members of a married couple. 
We're told that one day Hera and Zeus were arguing over whether or not the man or the woman enjoyed sex more. And Tiresias came along, and they asked him to answer the question because Tiresias had experienced sex as a man and as a woman. This came about because one day when he was a young man, he was out walking, and he saw a pair of snakes coupling, and he interfered in this. Some stories say that he just separated them. Some say that he wounded or even killed the female snake, and he became a woman. And then he lived life as a woman for a while, and years later, he was walking in the same place. He again saw a pair of snakes mating. He again intervened, and this time when he separated or wounded or killed one of the snakes, he became a man again. So Tiresias had experienced both, and when they asked him, he agreed with Zeus and said that women get 90% of the sexual pleasure that's experienced by the couple. And this made Hera very angry. She was not happy that this great secret (laughs) was revealed, and so she punished Tiresias by taking his sight. But then he got insight, that is, the gift of prophecy in exchange from Zeus. And if you're noting a competitive aspect in there, then yes, that is part of the intimacy of marriage, is it not? Marriage, as you well know, if you are married or have been married, is a very tricky and challenging proposition, as rewarding as it may be. And I think that James Hillman hit the nail on the head in an essay that he wrote titled, Hera, Goddess of Marriage. Hillman writes, Marriage involves two worlds, a world of huge ideals and a world of very mundane practicalities. He goes on to say that marriage is anchored in the ordinary world, and yet our fantasies and our idealizations are always there. The image of the perfect couple is in our head and coexisting at the same time that one of us is holding the trash bag open so the other one can put the garbage in. So we're always going back and forth between our ideals of who we want to be together and what life requires of us day to day. So Hera is involved with both of these things. She's involved with the idealization, and she's involved with the practicalities. And those practicalities have a couple of different aspects. I mean, one is the social role of being married. Marriage is a social institution. It's something people know about us publicly. The government's involved. And it's also a domestic arrangement in which we have to coordinate the needs of daily life. So in talking about the goddess of marriage, we're also talking about housekeeping. Now, it's not only women who express this, we know. There are plenty of men who want to be married, who enjoy the house and housekeeping who enjoy the hospitality of the dinner party co-hosted with the mate, and who understand that management of a household brings a very special reward. That is, you have a house that is a home. 
All of this is part of Hera's realm. And she was sometimes called cow-eyed because the cow was one of her images. And if you think of the cow, you you can feel the reliability and the nourishment and the warmth of domesticity. And yet, there is a very passionate engagement here. We have a deep intimacy in this coupling of brother and sister. And take that metaphorically, you know, for being in a partnership where there is very deep familiarity. So for Hera, Zeus's philandering is both a public dishonor and it is a personal betrayal. You remember they spent 300 years making love together. And Hera had three responses then to Zeus's wandering. One response was that she just left. And there are stories about Hera wandering to the ends of the earth. The problem was he didn't come for her. He didn't come after her. And so inevitably, she returned. She returned to the center of her world, her husband, Zeus, the all-powerful, and what that brought her. And we're told that she periodically refreshed herself by bathing in a spring, and bathing in a spring restored her virginity. There are two meanings to this action. In restoring her virginity, she brought herself back to the bride state. But virginity is also a state of self-possession, of belonging to yourself. You're a virgin before you give yourself over to someone else. So Hera essentially set the reset button for herself as well as for her marriage. Now, another thing that Hera did in response to Zeus's infidelity was she competed. Zeus inevitably had children, lots of children, with his other paramours, both divine and mortal. And so Hera attempted to have children on her own without him. For example, she gave birth to a monster called Typhon, a big serpent. According to the story, she went away from all of the gods, just full of hurt and anger, and she prayed. She prayed to the earth, and she struck the ground with the flat of her hand and asked the earth and all of the powers to be to listen to her, to give her a child separate from Zeus, one who was at least as strong as he was. And she cried and beat the earth, and then she felt the ground move under her hands, and she was happy because this signified to her that her prayer had been answered. So for a year, she did not go to bed with Zeus. She didn't go into the main meeting hall and sit in the throne and give him advice either. She waited. She stayed in her temples And finally, after some months and days, at the turning of the year, she gave birth. But what she gave birth to didn't resemble the gods or the humans. She gave birth to this cruel typhoon. And immediately, we're told, the Lady Hera, with her cow eyes, received it and used it 
to do plenty of terrible things. This big serpent or dragon ended up with the other dragoness at the Oracle of Delphi and remained there until Apollo killed them and took over the Oracle. Now, the third response that Hera had to Zeus's philandering was she took revenge. And she couldn't take revenge against her husband, obviously. He was Zeus. He was the big god. So she had to take her revenge. She had to express her outrage against his lovers. For example, Zeus fell in love with a young mortal woman named Semele, who was the daughter of King Cadmus, the founder of Thebes, and she fell in love with him too. So he went to great lengths to protect her from Hera. They met in all kinds of secret places. But unfortunately for this young woman, she became pregnant. And when she started to show, her family pressed her for details. They wanted to know, who's the father? And eventually, she confided that Zeus was the father. And this news made its way back to Hera. Hera went to Semele disguised as a nurse and offered her services to the mother-to-be. And she gently inquired after the child and she got Semele to take her into her confidence. And then Hera said, well, so have you ever seen him? Have you ever seen the father of your child? And Semele admitted that she had not. Zeus always came to her very heavily cloaked during the darkest time of night. In order to protect her from his divine brilliance, well, said Hera, I don't want to stir up trouble, and I'm sure everything is okay, but I kind of wonder why you're lover, I mean, why Zeus, the great God, why he's never let you see him, if in fact he's Zeus, and well, you know, I'm just thinking about the baby. You don't want to give birth to some kind of monster. Well, Semele was shocked at the suggestion, but that sowed some seeds of apprehension, and so she asked the nurse for her advice, and Harris said, I think you should insist that he show himself to you. If he really loves you, of course. If he really loves you, then he will show himself to you in the same form that he shows to his wife. So when Zeus came to Semele that night, she asked him if he loved her enough to grant her a favor. And of course, he promised to give her whatever she desired. But then she asked, let me see you in your full glory. And he tried to talk her out of it. But she wouldn't change her mind. She had decided this is what she had to have. She wanted to see the face that Hera, the goddess herself, beheld. Zeus revealed himself to her as a flash of fire and light, and lightning rained down, and Semele was immediately consumed by the heat and burned to a crisp. But luckily, Hermes was present, and he rescued her child, the infant god Dionysus, before Semele was completely destroyed, sliced open Zeus's thigh, inserted the baby, and Dionysus incubated there in the thigh of his father Zeus until the time of his second birth several months later.
Poor Semele burned to a crisp. And I don't know that she necessarily went out looking for Zeus, <laughs> although she did fall in love with him. Well, maybe Semele was was lucky because she died a rather speedy death, unlike poor Io. The young Io was a princess of Argos, another mortal woman that Zeus fell in love with, and like Callisto, who was turned into a bear, I told that story in the program about the Big Dipper, Io was in service to a goddess. Only in this case, Io was a priestess in the temple of Hera. Zeus fell in love with her, decided that he had to have her, and to keep Hera from noticing, he covered the world with a thick blanket of clouds. However, as soon as Hera saw that, she became suspicious about this sudden cloud cover and came down from Mount Olympus and started dispersing the clouds. Zeus had to do some quick thinking, and so he changed Io from a lovely maiden into a white heifer. Yes, a white cow. That is how Hera found him. Hera found Zeus standing next to this white heifer and asked him about the animal. And Zeus swore up and down that he had never seen this cow before and that it had just somehow sprang right out of the earth, right next to him. Hera was not fooled by this, and so she pet the cow and she made so many demonstrations of affection. She claimed that she loved this cow, this miraculous cow that had just appeared, and she wanted to have it as a present, please, hubby. And since it would be really strange to turn down such a reasonable request, and because he was afraid of giving himself away, Zeus gave her the cow. So Hera took possession of Io in this cow form and arranged to have... Uh, this creature named Argos, who had a hundred eyes so that he never was completely asleep, keep watch over her. So for some time, Argos acted as the cow herd and kept watch over Io, the white heifer. And now Zeus was desperate, desperate to consummate his union with Io, and so he sent Hermes to go and get her. Hermes, the trickster god, disguised himself as a shepherd and went to Argos and told him stories and played music. And ultimately, Hermes was so irresistible that he lulled all of Argos's 100 eyes to sleep, killed him, and freed Io. Now, when Hera heard about this, she sent gadflies to sting Io. Io was still in cow form, and so she was now pursued all around the world by this this swarm of, of buzzing flies, and it just made her crazy. It just made her crazy. She got, she just, in a state of madness, she wandered around the world. This lasted for some time, and during her journeys, she actually came across Prometheus while he was chained to the rock, and Prometheus gave her some hope. 
He predicted that although she was going to have to keep wandering for some more years, she was eventually going to be turned back into human form and bear a child, and that that child's descendant was going to be a great hero who would actually set him, Prometheus, free. And those predictions did come true. Because she traveled all over the place for so long, there are many geographical features that were named after her, like the Ionian Sea, for example, and the Bosporus, which means Ford of the Cow. Eventually, Io reached the Nile, and Zeus thought she might be safe from Hera there, so he put her back into her human form, and she bore a son, Apaphus, and 11 generations later, her descendant, Heracles, or Hercules, set Prometheus free. Hercules, then, is tortured for a very long time by Hera. The seven labors of Heracles, or Hercules, are the result of Hera hounding him and going after him. And she she takes revenge against the children wherever she can, too. And that's one of the things that's really tricky about these stories about Hera. I mean, on the one hand, when you think about her and Zeus and his just seemingly indiscriminate infidelity, you you feel sympathy for her. He just seems unrepentantly unfaithful to her, although he does try to hide his affairs, tries to hide his affairs from some respect, presumably and undoubtedly from fear, for his lovers at least, because Hera is a very powerful goddess. That's why she's his wife. And she wreaks havoc with her jealous rage. And there's the conundrum. Because even if you sympathize initially with her, when she goes after the lovers, in particular the mortal women, who are seduced or raped even by Zeus through trickery and shape-shifting usually, well, Hera's Revenge seems grossly unfair, doesn't it? But it's important to remember that the Greek gods and goddesses are not our benefactors. They can help if they want to. There's the example of Athena, who comes to the aid of Odysseus. She makes him her champion. She teaches him. She helps him develop into the kind of leader that Ithaca and Greece will require as they move into a more civilized social organization. And she protects him as well as she could. And as she could is an important qualifier. The Olympians are a big dysfunctional family. They are much more a mirror of our behavior and our trials than a model. They are not moral And that is actually one of the reasons that they are so very useful as perspective, as images for us to see through, as James Hillman said, to better understand the complexities of the emotions and desires and torments that afflict us. These moods and experiences, these compulsions, are rightly understood first as phenomenon, as things that happen. And this is one way of thinking about the archetypal. I think I used the word earlier when I said 
that Hera was the goddess of marriage. She represents or is the image of the archetype of marriage, of that kind of coupling. And when we are thinking about archetypes then, we are in touch with the reality, which is that there is something autonomous and inscrutable that moves through us. Despite our stories, despite our explanations and theories, we don't know or control what drives us. The Greeks understood that, (laughs) and they had mythology where we now have psychology. Now, another interesting thing about the archetypal. The archetypal perspective is complex. It contains the union of what we often see as opposites. So if marriage, in the image of Hera, is the longing to be coupled, well, that longing contains the fear of coupling and the longing to be uncoupled, to be single. We don't just see this in Zeus. There are a lot of ways to interpret Zeus's philandering. We can interpret it in the context of marriage as perhaps a desire to be out of it, a desire for something else, a longing to be free, single, swinging, whatever. Also remember that because he is the great God and the great Father, his gifts are many. His gifts are many. And many heroes and many important founding concepts, including the muses, are born as the result of his union with other deities and mortal women. But we also find this paradox of both the longing to be coupled and the longing to be uncoupled, that pull and tug, the perpetual pendulum swing that honestly don't all married people experience. We also find this in the three faces of Hera. Hera, the great goddess, like so many great goddesses, has three faces or aspects. And this threefoldness links her to the moon also, by the way. But her three faces are the maiden, the fulfilled, and the solitary. Going back to Hillman's essay for a moment, he suggests that the experience of being abandoned, the experience of being betrayed, the experience of being solitary by choice, of leaving to be alone, or of being widowed, all of those things are part of our experience of being married. It's, and it's, this is not a chronology. It's more that each of us partnered in a marriage are at all times still the, the virgin, still in possession of ourselves, still freshly naive, also living the role of the mate, the happy mate, and also living the life of the solitary that all of those longings are bound up together. 
the archetypal perspective is useful because it doesn't solve our problems. Life is not a problem to solve. Rather, the archetypal perspective deepens our understanding of the subtleties and the nuances of the many things that we experience to enable each of us to better find our own way through. So that's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. If you are a Bandcamp community member, I want to suggest that you can have a program of your own made. Please email me and let me know what topic or story you'd like for me to take up, and I would be happy to create a program for you to express my gratitude for your support as a community member. If you are finding value in Myth and the Mojave and you haven't yet joined the Bandcamp community, I hope you'll consider doing that. And I also hope you'll spread the word about Myth and the Mojave and share this program with other people who might be interested in it. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive. Mm-hmm.